Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lom, your host at this channel. Today, we are talking to Katherine Greenman, Anne Orford, and Anna Saunders about their new book, Revolutions in International Law, The Legacies of 1917. So uh, why don't I ask you ladies to introduce yourselves? Catherine, can we start with you? Hi, uh, thanks for having us. My name's Catherine Greenman. I'm a lecturer in the law faculty at the University of Technology in Sydney. Anna, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, So my name's Anna. I'm a, a PhD candidate in international law at the University College London, uh, and before this, I was a, an MPhil candidate and teaching fellow at Melbourne Law School. Okay, and Anne, would you mind saying a couple words about yourself? Hello, yes, I'm Anne Orford. I'm a Melbourne Laureate Professor and the Michael D. Kirby Chair of International Law at Melbourne Law School, and I directed the Laureate Program in International Law here from 2015. Uh, to this year. Excellent. Well, thank you, ladies, for joining us. Um, So let's talk about what inspired this collection, which is very geographically diverse, connecting Mexico and Russia in the 1917 timeframe. So I'll kick off. I'm, this is Anne Orford speaking again. So we came to be working together, the four co-editors, as part of the Laureate Program in International Law, uh, So this was a program at Melbourne Law School that ran for five years as part of a laureate fellowship that was funded by the Australian Research Council. So that broader project brought together international lawyers along with historians, political theorists, international relations scholars and practitioners. And the broad aim was to study civil war and its relation to transformations of international law over the past century or so. So international lawyers have played a fairly central role in framing the understanding of and responses to civil war and revolution, including through debates over whether external actors can intervene in such conflicts, what rules govern the resort to force, how neutral actors might trade with warring parties, or when property and uh, investors, property owners and investors could be compensated for losses suffered during such conflicts. So my co-editors, Catherine, Anna and Dina, were fellows working with the program when they proposed a conference for 2017 to mark the legacy of the October Revolution in Russia and the adoption of the revolutionary Mexican constitution. So I enthusiastically agreed that the Laureate Program should host that conference. There is a lot of debate, of course, about 
um, both historically and philosophically, about the relation between the concept of civil war, that was the focus of the program, and revolution, which is the focus of the book, and over the, whether they're equivalent or related, and if so, how. So whatever view one takes on that question, in the context of international law, we can see that revolution and civil war often raise very similar questions. So that centenary offered a wonderful opportunity to think about what we might learn about the revolutionary events of 1917 from studying international law, and perhaps just as importantly for us, what we might learn about international law from studying the way that the field had responded to, incorporated, imagined, rejected, uh, or tried to manage these revolutionary events. So the idea was very much that of my co-editors. Uh, so I'll hand over to them to explain what inspired their proposal. So um, Anna, would you like to go first? Thanks very much. Yes, the the idea for the conference that, that Anne mentioned really came out of some work that each of us were doing that intersected with the histories of these revolutions. And so we had a sense that it might be helpful to think about them in a more holistic way. And specifically, we wanted to think about uh, their history in the sense of being uh, what is often called the first two social revolutions of the 20th century that had really profound consequences, not only for the kind of states that they created or for the forms of violence uh, that they represented or that were marshaled in response to them, but significantly for the way that those states transformed foundational concepts of property or uh, sought to think about conditions of labour, uh, inspired revolutionary or decolonial movements in other parts of the world and led to international legal responses that would have significant consequences for the shape of international law as well as of world politics going forward over the 20th century. And uh, going back to the terms of your question, Samantha, we, we wanted to think about them together partly because this provided us with a way of bringing scholars working on different aspects of international law its history and practice into conversation. And we were very fortunate to have a terrific set of contributors doing groundbreaking work, which I will mention and draw on here in discussing the volume. And I do really encourage listeners to take a look at each of their contributions in the volume and their wider bodies of work. But we also wanted to think about these two revolutions together, partly for disciplinary reasons, because the way that international lawyers consider different geographic situations and synthesize materials and histories and practices in order to fashion legal arguments doesn't necessarily observe geographical boundaries or historical or regional specialisms in the same way that other disciplines might. In, in fact, if you read the writings of international lawyers in the interwar period and the early decades of the 20th century, it's not unusual to see these two revolutions mentioned 
in the same breath, either as posing a, a fundamental challenge uh, to different forms of legal relations or as requiring a kind of concerted um, disciplinary response. And in some cases, uh, these responses resulted in the use of similar legal techniques or similar legal questions being considered or categories created in relation to both states. So an example of this would be uh, what is discussed by uh, Professor Alison Duxbury of Melbourne Law School in her chapter, the question of whether and at what point revolutionary states can become members of international organisations and thereby have a voice in the very significant law-creating work done by these organisations over the 20th century. So bringing these two revolutions together was helpful in understanding them not as discrete events, but as a kind of more fundamental moment that was significant for a range of different institutions, legal regimes and uh, theoretical responses across different areas of international law. Okay. So let's talk about these um, events that we're talking about here. How did the Mexican Constitution and Revolution and the Russian Revolution change legal theory? Well, I think picking up on some of the things that, that Anna just identified, the, the best way to answer that question might be to think of some of the really fundamental questions that both the Mexican Revolution and Constitution and, and the Russian Revolution raised um, for international legal theory. So for, for how we think about the nature of international law. So it really kind of forced a confrontation with the question of what's the relationship between international law and capitalism and liberalism? Does international law have something to do with capitalism and liberalism? What's the nature of um, that relationship? Or might there be um, a socialist international law? And yeah, this, this really touches on bigger questions about the universality of international law. Also, two revolutions raised questions about the meaning of fundamental concepts like property, sovereignty, um, non-intervention. Also, questions about whether revolutionary practice can create law um, and whether international law can be a force for um, revolutionary change. Um, whether it might be a counter-revolutionary force or um, or even both. So, um, yeah, in the book, we really wanted to um, use the, the Mexican constitution and the Russian revolution to um, yeah, think about those really big questions for international legal theory. So could you explain to our listeners who are probably not familiar with the Mexican constitution of 1917, what is specifically groundbreaking about that document? So there are two particularly groundbreaking aspects that we um, pick up on in the volume, uh, and those are labour rights and land reform. So to take labour rights first, the Mexican uh, Constitution of 1917 included the rights um, to collective bargaining, the right to strike, recognition of the out, um, eight-hour day, 
workers' compensation and maternity leave, and equal pay. Um, so yeah, the time's kind of the most progressive constitution um, the world had, had seen in that respect. Um, and yeah, thinking about our volume, I might bring in here um, my Taha's um, chapter on the International Labour Organization. So um, yeah, she looks at how the International Labour Organization was um, a response um, in international law to the organization, radicalization, militarization of um, workers and an attempt to incorporate workers kind of into international law and into international institutions, but kind of so as to tame them, really, or perhaps in a slightly different way, um, to incorporate the right types of workers' organisations, you know, moderate or reformist, so as to marginalise perhaps the wrong kind of workers' organisations, radical or um, communist, um, in a way that um, erased kind of racial gender differences in um, the colonial context. So yeah, the first kind of pillar of the Mexican constitution that was groundbreaking and that um, we look at in the book is, is about labour. And as I said, the second part is about um, land reform. So perhaps the most well-known article of the 1917 Mexican constitution is article 27 um, about land. So this yeah, introduced the right of the state to regulate private property and the use of natural resources, also facilitated the redistribution of land. So the breaking up um, of large land holdings and the protection or restoration um, or creation of um, communal property. So land held um, in common by kind of agricultural communities. It also uh, returned the ownership of the subsoil to the nation. So yeah, in the context, for example, of mining, all those resources being found under the ground um, don't belong to the private owner of that land, but belong to the um, state. It put limits on foreign ownership of land, um, also on ownership of land by banks and companies and the church, um, and on concession rights. So that would, yeah, again, rights to um, to mine, to build railways, um, limited the extent to which foreign companies or foreign nationals could kind of have these kind of rights over land. Um, and it also gave um, the state to review all kind of historical concessions and to void them um, if they were in the public interest. So yeah, you can imagine that would have, was of great interest to, for example, US oil companies um, in, in Mexico. Okay, thank you. Can you tell us how this compares to the subsequent Soviet constitutions, which is a topic that is near and dear to my heart? Um, absolutely, yeah. So, um, I mean, I suppose thinking about the labor rights aspects, yeah, the, the Mexican revolutionary constitution kind of anticipates some of those social rights that um, we see in subsequent um, Soviet constitutions. Um, but when it comes to land reform, I think we can see that the Mexican constitution as much more um, moderate, um, both kind of in the text and also in, in terms of how it was implemented um, in practice, because initially not that much happened, right? Only a really small amount of land was kind of redistributed immediately after um, 1917. And it wasn't until the presidency of Lazaro Cardenas um, in the 1930s 
that yet yeah, there was really any kind of meaningful distribution of land um, and of course the uh, nationalization of um, oil um, but yet yeah, the Mexican revolutionary constitution didn't I mean it protected and maintained um, yeah, private ownership of land to a significant extent and there wasn't um, confiscation or expropriation without um, compensation so yeah the kind of subsequent Soviet constitutions were much more radical in that respect when it came to um, land reform. Uh, one of our contributors, uh, Scott Newton, in his um, chapter in the volume, he understands um, the 1924 Soviet constitution as a radical experiment in transforming an empire um, into a different type of constitutional order. So an experiment in internal self-determination, kind of a radically innovative way to accommodate national and um, ethnic pluralism within um, a state and um, an alternative to the League of Nations, um, for example. And yeah, I suppose the Mexican revolutionary um, constitution as well doesn't have that sort of um, aspect um, to it. Um, and yeah, I suppose you might also think that both constitutions um, in the end perhaps didn't really fulfill um, their progressive promises and indeed yeah, both led to kind of long periods of, um, of one party rule in both um, Mexico yeah, and the Soviet Union. Although I would say that in the Soviet case, that was by design. That's not really considered a flaw. They're very clear that that's how that's supposed to be. <laughs> um, so thank you. Uh, would you mind talking a little bit about the role uh, that Soviet legal theorists of subsequent generations attributed to law and legal structure in the construction mm -hmm. of socialism? Because they're the ones that really take up sort of the mantle of building socialist law. And how does this affect states that adopt the Soviet model? Um, absolutely. So, yeah, in answering this question, I would particularly highlight um, Owen Taylor's um, chapter in, um, in, the, in the volume. So he really looks at um, early Soviet legal theory. Um, and so one theory of international law is that it is an argumentative practice or a vocabulary or a grammar or a set of procedures for making claims, whether that's to rights or entitlements, obligations um, or duties, and it's indeterminate. So the outcomes of um, are not predetermined. A whole range of plausible arguments can be put forward in any um, particular circumstance. Um, and if this is the case, then surely international legal arguments can be made in support of socialism and we can have a socialist um, international law. But in his chapter, Owen Taylor um, rejects the explanatory power of this response or, or this approach to international law or at least um, wants to recognize that there are limits to this idea of international law as indeterminate and capable of um, supporting a variety um, of different um, positions. And instead, he draws on the work, um, particularly of the Soviet theorist, Bernie Pashukhanis, um, to think about whether there might not be something in the very nature or form of international law that is capitalist and imperialist or bourgeois, and therefore inherently inimical to the goals of socialist um, revolution. 
And Pashitanis argued that, I'm quoting here, modern international law is the legal form of the struggle of the capitalist states among themselves for domination um, over the rest of the world. And obviously, this is, if this is right, this is really significant um, for the role that international law can play in constructing um, socialism. So on this view of international law, it can perhaps be used tactically or opportunistically or pragmatically to pursue um, revolutionary socialist aims. But that has to be part of um, a much broader struggle. And in using international law in kind of a tactical, uh, opportunistic way, you have to be really careful that this doesn't simply serve to legitimate the international order that ultimately um, yet yeah, you want to overthrow. Um, so, yeah, this understanding of the limitations of international law, yeah, particularly in this Pashukanist um, approach, really yeah, has consequences for um, the, yeah, the, the role that it can play in, in, in constructing socialism. Okay, thank you. So let's talk about the larger legal legacy of 1917. Um, how does 1917 affect international law? Uh, I think that Catherine, this question might be for you. Uh, you know, how did the how did international law mediate the threat posed to international economic order by revolution in Mexico? Right. Sorry, I was just feeling really self conscious that um, I've been talking um, a huge amount, but yeah, I will. I will um, take this one. Um, so my contribution uh, to the volume looks at how international arbitration was used to mediate disputes about harm or injuries or losses caused to foreign nationals in Mexico during the revolution and particularly um, economic uh, losses. And this was an extremely significant an issue during the revolution. Uh, because prior to the revolution, during um, the rule of Porfirio Diaz, foreign trade and investment in Mexico increased dramatically. And so we can understand um, the revolution as both a response to and a challenge um, to the economic transformation of Mexico um, during uh, the Porfiriato. And it, it challenged it really, not just in the way that all revolutions might um, challenge kind of economic relations because they're disruptive and, and violent, but to a certain extent, it was also it was an ideological um, challenge to that economic order, although that varied um, different groups, in different places, um, yeah, had more or less um, of yeah, a kind of radical challenge to um, that economic order. And so after um, the revolution, a series of um, international commissions were set up to decide yeah, what kind of compensation should be paid to foreign nationals who yet yeah, lost property, um, investments or goods 
um, during the revolution. And these commissions consisted of uh, a commissioner from Mexico, uh, a commissioner from the home state of yeah, wherever the, the foreign nationals were from, and then one kind of neutral umpire in case the national commissioners um, couldn't agree. And this kind of internationalization, taking these questions um, of how to resolve disputes about harm caused to foreign nationals during the revolution out of the domestic sphere um, and leaving it to international tribunals to decide was um, extremely uh, significant. Um, because this was a way of kind of insulating certain economic uh, relationships from changes at the domestic level. So it meant that the Mexican authorities couldn't simply decide the amount of compensation that they might pay to um, get a foreign investor who'd lost some property, or they couldn't just decide how much security they were going to provide to um, yeah, a merchant's goods against bandits or um, rebels. Those questions were going to be decided um, internationally. And it meant that foreign nationals in Mexico had a certain right to property, right to the sanctity um, of contract that couldn't simply be undone by changes um, at the domestic level. And I start my uh, chapter with a quote from um, a US international lawyer actually writing in the 1930s, Frederick Sherwood Dunn. Um, and he said of the, the Mexican Revolution, the underlying problem was essentially an economic one and involved the question how a presumably necessary economic and social reform could be brought about in the national sphere without unduly upsetting the international economic system as embodied in the existing body of international law. And yeah, I think for my chapter, that's really the fundamental question that the Mexican um, Revolution posed to international law. And one thing that arbitration did um, was to make sure that the international economic system wasn't unduly upset by any changes that were, were happening um, in the domestic sphere. Um, but I don't want to make it seem that um, in this context, international law was something that was kind of imposed on Mexico, um, or that this was entirely one-sided. Um, because although the Mexican authorities generally resisted arbitration, they wanted to resolve these disputes domestically. Um, arbitration did also have its benefits um, for various Mexican um, governments. I mean, on one hand, these decisions going to international tribunals, there was an opportunity to make arguments, to make your case and, and sometimes win. These tribunals didn't guarantee um, that foreign nationals would necessarily get um, compensation. And in fact, out of the hundreds of millions of dollars of claims um, that were made to these tribunals, um, yeah, only a relatively small percentage was actually awarded um, in compensation. And arbitration could also be um, a bargaining chip. So for a number of governments, they offered arbitration in exchange for recognition um, as the legitimate government or simply as a way to avoid um, yet more militaristic or violent types um, of 
intervention. And so, yeah. Catherine, I'm going to ask you just to talk a little bit longer. Can you tell us if the international community was able to use these mechanisms to mediate against the threat posed by the Bolsheviks? Um, to an extent, and, and quite a limited um, extent. Um, there was kind of a long history of arbitration in the Americas that wasn't really replicated elsewhere. So the United States was kind of an early adopter of arbitration kind of as part of its um, foreign policy. I mean, kind of uh, for various uh, reasons. Um, but yeah, so that really influenced this kind of growth of arbitration, um, particularly between the US and Latin America, yeah, didn't necessarily um, apply in um, other contexts. And in fact, yeah, the Soviet Union only ever participated um, and it only kind of half participated in the end because it ended up withdrawing its um, arbitrator in um, in one um, arbitration, which I'll, I'll say a little bit about um, in a moment. But yeah, I mean, even in the Latin American context, arbitration was only one of kind of a series of um, mechanisms or, or techniques kind of for managing the threat that revolution posed to um, economic relations. There was as well just straight out intervention Right. So the US intervened a couple of times in Mexico during the revolution. Um, it's also intervention in the civil war in Russia as well. But yeah, there's also uh, diplomacy, negotiation, kind of plotting and scheming as well. The US embassy was involved in a military coup against um, the president of Mexico, Francisco Madero, in 1913. So, yeah, even where arbitration was used a lot, it was just part of kind of a suite um, of mechanisms. But yeah, as I said, the, the Soviet Union did participate or partly participate um, in one uh, arbitration, which is discussed in the book in both Daria Zabiti and Andrea Leiter's um, contributions. So basically to the context for this um, arbitration. So one strategy that the Soviet Union adopted um, where they had expropriated property from foreign companies um, without compensation. Um, they sometimes granted those foreign companies a new concession agreement, kind of as an indirect compensation without having to admit a legal obligation to compensate and also kind of getting something in return um, as well. So this was the context in which Lena Goldfields, um, a British company, was granted a concession to explore um, Siberian gold mines. Um, and yet yeah, this company had initially kind of lost out when the goldfields had been nationalized um, after the revolution. Um, anyway, yeah, the kind of the, the relationship broke down, right? And um, yeah, Lena Goldfield ended up taking the Soviet Union to um, arbitration, claiming um, yeah, it hadn't been able to work on, on the gold mines and kind of lost, lost its um, investment. And the concession was terminated. Um, and yet the Soviet Union actually uh, withdrew its arbitrator and refused to continue um, participating in the arbitration um, for kind of a perfectly good technical um, legal reason. 
But the tribunal anyway uh, went on to kind of consider the company's claim and found that the first um, five-year plan uh, was a reversal of kind of this policy of granting concessions and awarded the company £13 million in compensation, um, including nearly um, £10 million for lost profits. So yeah, again, we can see that kind of foreign um, investors, foreign companies are insulated against changes um, in law and policy um, at the domestic level um, by arbitration. Okay, thank you for your answer. Um, let's move on to Anna. Uh, I have a question for you about European human rights and how they're considered a counter-reactionary reaction to Soviet communism. And this is interesting because this tends to not be how we think of human rights. So could you explain this idea a little bit to us? Absolutely. So, I mean, the background, I think, to this uh, exploration of this topic in my chapter is that from our kind of vantage point here in the present and following the demise of the Soviet Union and the post-Cold War moment, there is a kind of way in which the language of human rights, at least for some actors or in some fields, became almost all-encompassing. There was this idea that all political projects and demands can be expressed through the language of human rights and that it represents a very powerful vocabulary for making demands on states as well as corporate actors or international institutions, that there is kind of no political downside, I suppose, to framing demands in this way. And my chapter, which looks at the history of European human rights specifically and its relationship to uh, the October Revolution, as well as to a lesser extent, the uh, Mexican Revolutionary Constitution, uh, really came out of a sense that there might be or might have been a tension between, on the one hand, this idea of human rights as a political vocabulary, and then, on the other hand, the, the very specifically kind of legal ways that human rights are tied to and realised through particular institutions and that legal procedures and precedents have authority in terms of shaping how human rights are understood. So I examined this through the history of a particular article of the European Convention uh, of Human Rights, Article 17, which effectively is a, is a kind of a regulatory or, or constitutional element of the convention, which acts to prevent human rights protections from being available to certain kinds of actors. And I show how human rights thinking and institutional design from the interwar period onward, leading up to the convention, was very much inspired by the actions of the Mexican and Soviet revolutionary states, as well as influenced by later anti-communist sentiment. And that human rights thinking and the kinds of vocabularies that emerged during this time can be understood partly as a response to revolution, to the Soviet renunciation of unequal treaties and the standard of civilization, and to the sorts of accommodations that the Allies 
reached with the Soviet state. And uh, my, my argument essentially is that this sort of thinking represented a kind of uneasy compromise between, on the one hand, uh, the offer of political freedoms and the protection of those freedoms with, on the other hand, the uh, possibility for the exclusion of certain kinds of politics. And this included, you know, a broad range of politics, both revolutionary as well as forms of fascist politics from the scope of the new human rights instruments. And this all was taking place in the context of early developments relating to the uh, formalization of the right of individual petition to international institutions, which had the potential to be kind of uh, explosive as a form of political contestation and which carried through into being a central aspect of human rights systems more broadly. So in the chapter, I talk about how the drafters of uh, rights instruments were really, in the European context, were concerned about this contestation, about providing publicity for non-liberal ideologies. And as a result, they, they allocated to institutional actors the capacity to decide who gets to be excluded and what kind of politics is considered democratic politics. And that in turning to this kind of institutional solution, uh, they rejected arguments from other drafters that social provision or social equality rather than forms of adjudication or criminalization were the best way for law to protect political freedoms and prevent authoritarianism, although that was to some extent a debate that continued to play out over the 20th century and and um, even today, but beyond the scope of the chapter as I as I wrote it. So you know that oh sorry. <laughs> So could you explain to our listeners how exactly Soviet conceptions of human rights diverge from neoliberal versions? Because the Soviets were also very much on excluding people they didn't like from social protections. I mean, the 1924 Constitution legally disenfranchises kulaks, uh, religious people, and other sort of class enemies. Or, you know, forbids them the right to vote, the right to hold office. That's written right in there. So mm. it, is the difference really only that Soviets excluded class enemies and then, of course, fascists and neoliberals just excluded communists? So I think in, in answering the kind of question about what the Soviets included and excluded, I could really draw on um, Jess White's chapter on, in the volume, although that's not something that I look at within my own chapter but she examines um, the main contribution of the Soviets to uh, human rights thinking um, in the present and and how we might think about that legacy. Of course, uh, you know, one distinction, I suppose, between Soviet practice and European practice generally is that the European practice is still with us, whereas the Soviet practice... Uh, tends not to be an active part of how we think about human rights. 
uh, today in a live kind of legal and adjudicative sense. Um, but to give you the background to, to Jess's chapter, I suppose, uh, uh, and this is Jess White, who's an, an associate professor in law as well as philosophy at UNSW, uh, a common way of describing the contribution of the Soviet state, as I, I'm sure you're familiar with, has been um, to f- to focus on the inclusion of economic, social and cultural rights in international instruments such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And then to focus on the extent to which those economic, social and cultural rights, as you mentioned, were uh, both part of the Soviet constitution and uh, not realised within the Soviet Union itself. And Jess in her chapter notes that, uh, you know, this is very much true of the 1936 Soviet constitution and its nominal guarantees of these rights that did not exist in reality and under which new kinds of coercive labor discipline and inequality were were widespread. Uh, But what she argues in the chapter is that um, the idea that social and economic rights were the main contribution of the Soviets to international human rights, as opposed to constitutional or domestic forms of their protection, is the, the wrong way to think about the legacy of Soviet thought. And she suggests that we might instead think of the key contribution of Soviet thinkers and diplomats through the drafting of the Universal Declaration in the 1940s as as being an insistence on formal equality and the prevention of racial discrimination and racialized forms of colonial or apartheid rule. So, for instance, the Soviets specifically fought for the declaration's application in the colonies held by many of the imperial powers at the conference, even as there was this contradiction between their application within the Soviet Union. And she argues that this focus on formal equality was part of the Soviet vision of what human rights really was good for, which was preventing the rise of fascism and the racialized ideologies that that underpinned it. But that at the same time, rather than than being wedded to social and economic rights, Soviet delegates were were very skeptical about the benefits of declaring these rights without the creation of of underlying conditions uh, for their realisation. So what she really wants to call attention to, uh, I think, at least in my reading of her chapter, is the distance that the Soviet delegation created between, on the one hand, formal conceptions of rights, and on the other hand, what we might think of as uh, hopes for a good society or holding out the possibility of a more utopian horizon. And she suggests that this same kind of distance can be helpful to us in thinking about, from our vantage point here in the present, how to reimagine new political possibilities. 
So this focus on material conditions to realize rights is actually quite interesting. It's something Stalin himself brings up discussing the 1936 Constitution. Basically, how can you exercise your right to freedom of speech if you're hungry and unemployed, which, you know, in the middle of the Great Depression was a fairly powerful argument. Uh, And the Soviet Constitution guarantees things like access to printing houses. Now, of course, there's the caveat that you can exercise your right to freedom of speech only in service of socialism. But I think it is interesting that they do find it necessary to highlight that you have to have access to paper, printing houses, um, radio sets in order to be able to effectively realize your freedoms in a way that I don't see presented in European human law. Um, I think this is an issue now when dealing with things like refugees or certainly in the U.S. healthcare. You know, do these sorts of material conditions that help you realize a better life count as human rights? Um, Would you like to maybe comment on that? Look, I think that... um, I think you're absolutely right to call attention to that, that distinction, and that's really you know, both in Jess's chapter as well as to a lesser extent in some of the things that I was grappling with in my chapter is really a live question for us in thinking about what human rights offer and what they might uh, not be able to deliver. Um I suppose this also goes back to, uh, you know, all this. Although this is not um, not my focus in the volume, some of the things that that Catherine touched on before, in terms of the contemporary operation of regimes of um, investment arbitration, the uh, immense payments being made. Uh, by states, uh, often by third world states, as a result of claims made in international fora and the consequences of those payments and what is really an immense kind of um, uh, burden on the way that the state can allocate its taxation and spending um, for the possibility of 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 social uh, spending investment in infrastructure the provision of social goods so I think that's really a key issue in respect of human rights but also in respect of a number of areas of international law that we touch on in the volume okay thank you for your answer let's move on to Anne Would you like to talk about the legal legacy of the Mexican and Russian revolutions influence on decolonization movements? This actually ties nicely into what we were just talking about. Yes. So in many ways, I would say that the interrelation of theories of imperialism and how we think about international law is really central or the most significant legal legacy of the Mexican and Russian revolutions, at least for our field of international law. And the starting point is the understanding of imperialism as economic, so as a stage of capitalism, rather than thinking about 
imperialism as essentially political or cultural, so about exploitation rather than domination. And fighting, fighting colonialism or fighting imperialism was seen to be a central aspect of um, re- the, the revolutionary movement in Europe. So not just an add-on, but really central to the whole project. So n- numerous contributors to the book argue that the legal legacies of these revolutions would go on to inspire and influence numerous other 20th century national and transnational movements struggling against imperialism and struggling for social revolution. So, so we could sorry would you Samantha, like to yeah. start with um, we can start with Mexico because that was uh, the first revolution. Would we like to talk about the impact of Mexico's revolution on Latin decolonization movements and sort of its broader global impact? Yeah, so if we think about um, decolonization in Latin America, it's obviously, of course, been going on already um, for almost a century by the time we come to the Mexican Revolution, if we think about um, kind of the decolonization process of the 19th century. Um, Indeed, even in relation to the US, we could think of decolonization from from Britain, but also, of course, from um, Spain and Portugal in much of Latin America. And so international law really develops in many ways in and through this period of the um, decolonization in the 19th century. So many of the principles that we continue to think and talk about in terms of alien protection, about which um, Catherine Greenman has written a great deal, and also non-intervention, are all beginning to develop during the 19th century. But a number of this comes into focus more sharply in relation to um, the Mexican Revolution. So uh, a number of the chapters look at this in some detail. So, for instance, Juan Pablo Scarfi talks about how the Mexican Revolution and the 1917 Constitution transformed international law in Mexico and Latin America, and he focuses particularly on uh, debates about intervention. So as I've said, non-intervention has already begun to develop throughout the 19th century in part through the um, context of decolonization. But he focuses in particular on the the thought of Isidro Favela, who's the foreign minister of Mexico during this period, and who develops international legal doctrines concerning non-intervention, particularly in response to the U.S., uh, partly in the face of U.S. intervention in 1914. And he really tries to uh, create a much more robust account of non-intervention to argue that there really has to be a stronger position taken by states in Latin America to resist For instance, the Monroe Doctrine that had been a central feature of American um, policy since the the, the 1800s and which the US had continued to treat as a central pillar of its relationship both with Latin America and with Europe. So the US had always presented the principle, the the, um, doctrine, the Monroe Doctrine, as organised around the principle of self-defence and as a way of preventing European intervention in the Western Hemisphere, so as a a kind of self-defence principle. But 
Latin American states had always been more uneasy about this, including as a result of the Roosevelt Corollary and the idea that for the US, the Monroe Doctrine was also a justification for intervening in Latin America. And Favela was very opposed to this way of thinking about the Monroe Doctrine. He really tried to push other Latin American states to oppose the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, And in fact, the Monroe Doctrine is effectively incorporated into the League of Nations covenant in Article 21 at the insistence of the US, which then doesn't go on to um, join the League. But Mexico's resistance to that inclusion is partly seen at least by Mexico, as one of the reasons that it's blocked from joining the league until 1931. So um, the fact that he was taking, Favela was taking this much stronger approach meant that in some ways he was really at the forefront of promoting international legal innovation in defence of Latin American states, but he didn't really managed to gain a great deal of support from other jurists and diplomats in the region at the time. Many states were much more concerned not to really um, break with the US. But he certainly, and and kind of the Mexican position, certainly had a lot of impact on anti-imperialist intellectuals and political activists, including in Argentina, in Brazil, in Cuba, and um, still continues to have kind of influence as a way of thinking about a stronger regional position and uh, a Latin American tradition in international law. So Fabio Vesoso also looks at this question of intervention and she takes up the way in which, again, uh, Favela, this time at a later phase in his career, really innovates in the position that Mexico takes in the context of the Spanish Civil War. So Mexico is there um, supporting providing um, support to the Spanish Republic, precisely arguing that that doesn't go against a commitment to non-intervention because in this instance um, the Spanish Republic is under siege from um, fascist Germany and Italy supporting um, Franco and that what is needed is other um, league members and other states to act in support of the Spanish Republic. So Fabio there is showing uh, that the Mexican revolutionary government is again taking a leading position in trying to shape the way that states thought about the principle of non-intervention and intervention in a way uh, that would bring it much closer to, I think, a model of collective security that we now take for granted in relation to the United Nations. Um, Kate Miles looks at much more the focus on economic law. So she's looking at the protection of property um, and the way in which both in the Russian Revolution and the 1917 Mexican Constitution are challenging the basis in which the international legal order was beginning to move towards protecting property as a priority. And she argues that the form of the law of expropriation that's being kind of argued over during this period is shaped in part through legal responses to both uh, of those revolutions and the on and the accompanying processes of nationalization. Um, and that in both cases, the governments were seeking to set up the idea of a right of nationalization without compensation to foreign investors 
where there's widespread reform programs for the public good. So she points out that the reaction to these revolutionary events, in fact, is what ends up reverberating so significantly in international law in the form of international investment law, which has now become quite a contested project of international law in the 21st century. So in a sense, the revolutionary states of like the USSR and Mexico are not successful in creating new international law, but we see continued debates over these questions right into the 21st century, over the ways in which responses to the impact of these revolutions have continued to shape economic ordering and really the um, prioritising of the protection of foreign property, even in the context of um, of civil war or revolution. Okay. So I have another question. How did the Bolshevik theory of imperialism shape Bolshevik engagement with international law? And how did that influence on later third world, developing world, uh, and anti-racist movements? This is a really interesting question. Um, and a number of the chapters deal with this and really raise some new ways of thinking about issues that we'd begun to take for granted, I think. So if we look at the chapter by Rob Knox and Dina Suvala, uh, they focus on the way that the Bolshevik understanding to, of imperialism and opposition to imperialism shaped both the approach taken uh, by other states and movements to decolonization, but also anti-racism struggles within, for, for example, the United States. So that flowed from the point I made earlier that the Bolshevik theory of imperialism um, imagined a role or, or envisaged a role for exploited peoples in the colonised world as radical political agents in the coming world revolution. So there was seen to be a relation uh, of agency between resisting colonialism and re resisting capitalism. And so the theory, the Bolshevik theory of imperialism understood national liberation and the defeat of colonialism as a precondition to defeating capitalism or, or fighting for socialism. So Rob and Dina argue that that approach was taken up um, institutionally. So, for instance, in the annual congresses of the Communist International, but it was also the foundation conceptually for pioneering legal arguments. So, for instance, that international law should recognise political subjectivity through the formal equality of all nations, sovereign equality, or an insistence on um, a, a broad right to self-determination. And it was, they argue, at the Soviet insistence that a reference to self-determination is included in the preamble to the UN Charter and that it was the, um, this, this approach to self-determination as a counter to imperialism um, that challenged hierarchies between civilised and non-civilised states. And they also point to the ways in which this informed anti-racism struggles within the US, for instance, on the part of the African-American Civil Rights Congress. So there's a really interesting part of their chapter looking at the We Charge genocide petition submitted to the United Nations in 1951, linking, for instance, the 
racial oppression, Jim Crow, the policing of African-Americans in the U.S. with American imperialism abroad and arguing that they were part of the same economic structure or system. Amanda Alexander looks at this same theory of imperialism but uh, links it to embryonic international criminal law and the approach to aggression that's developed by the Soviet lawyers um, at the Nuremberg trials. So we often in international law think about the Nuremberg trials kind of as a product of US or British um, prosecutors, but actually um, Amanda reminds us of the central role also played by the Soviet prosecutor, General Rudenko, and the way in which the Soviet theory of imperialism is really embedded in the approach to aggression that's adopted at Nuremberg. So she argues that the the kind of treatment of crimes against peace as the source of war crimes and crimes against humanity is really a codification and a narrativization of this way in which um, imperialism was understood uh, by the Bolsheviks. So on this account, imperialism, as I've already mentioned, is understood as an economic institution and it's aggressive imperialist war that's the crime of crimes rather than genocide or crimes against humanity. This is the crime that enables all, other, all others. And so we see this you know, expressed not just by Rudenko but also by um, the US prosecutor Jackson expressing a very similar account of aggressive imperialist war. Uh, so he, he, he says the insistence that aggressive war was not prohibited is part of an outdated and amoral theory of imperialism, which sounds a, a lot more like, you know, Lenin than than we might expect coming from a U.S. prosecutor. So for Ale- for Amanda Alexander, we can't really understand this um, narrative that's produced at Nuremberg unless we pay attention to the important place that the Soviets played in shaping this prosecution strategy, a strategy that's then kind of treated as a common project by. Um, the UK, the US, and um, the Soviets. Okay. Uh, and Ka- sorry, yeah, Catherine's also mentioned Scott Newton, so I won't say much more about that. But just Scott Newton's um, piece on the Soviet Union as a model of an international legal order is also very interesting because he asks us to think about Soviet internationality in the context of a situation where the Bolsheviks in 1917 basically in- inherit an empire. So they want to kind of hold on to that territory but de-imperialise it and they do that by setting up something that looks really quite avant-garde. So they imagine a kind of national ethnic pluralism, at least formally, um, with what looks like a kind of internal form of self-determination. So, Samantha, you may have a sense of whether you think that's how it really kind of operates in practice, but at least... In theory, this governance scheme looks like a very interesting form of national ethnic pluralism, um, something that almost looks like the League of Nations, but applied um, to the Soviet space. Terry Martin actually has a really good book on that called Affirmative Action Empire that looks with the uh, rights and uh, privileges and, of course, the issues 
um, that they have implementing sort of a pluralistic approach and an approach designed to raise up non-Russian nationalities that may have been historically oppressed. It's actually a really, really interesting book. Fascinating. So let's talk about sort of the limits of international law as revealed in this study. Um, You all talk about international law as a non-neutral force, which I think may be surprising to some of our listeners as you know, we tend to think of law as something that is neutral, um, that is non-biased, that is even blind, perhaps. Um, so would one of you like to elaborate on this idea? Yes, I think that's um, that question of, of neutrality uh, of international law is a really critical question for the volume so I'm I'm glad that you uh that we have a chance to speak about that but I think there are really there would be a couple of different ways of answering this question so one would be the debate about indeterminacy that that Catherine touched on earlier um the question of is international law itself neutral in the sense of being a kind of set of arguments capable of being repurposed for different political projects that the application of legal rules to real world questions is not fixed or predetermined and that this can kind of fall out in in unexpected ways and um on On this question, some contributions to the book make a kind of historical intervention in response in suggesting that even if international law is an argumentative practice rather than a set of predetermined outcomes, that in in relation to these revolutions and their consequences, international lawyers deployed those arguments in order to reject or to manage revolutionary politics rather than to embrace it. Uh, So this would be, um, one example of this would be the kinds of legal regimes of property protection that both Catherine and Anne have touched on. Uh, Another example would be the chapter by by uh, Mai Taha that Catherine mentioned earlier, the idea that the uh, international labour organisation, as it was set up, was both based on a concern with the alienation of workers, but also an attempt to reject the more radical. Uh, aspects of critiques of the conditions of those workers, including as they specifically related to the colonies. Um, So you could say that international law was not a neutral force in that sense. And then I think, you know, this idea of international law as a set of professionals or regimes that did things in the world also 
raises the further question of the, uh, you might call it the historiography of the field, but really it's the question of who counts as an international lawyer, which figures are remembered as representing the field and who is not permitted to speak for the field. Um, And there are other contributions to the book, I think, that reveal unexpected trajectories or histories of international law that offer the possibility of a different answer to that question. So one of those would be Amanda Alexander's chapter that Anne mentioned before, um, which I think you can read as a provocation to consider the current orientation of international criminal law and and ask what the place is for uh, these figures and these theories in contemporary practice. Um, I think the the second way of answering this question of of is international law a a neutral force is uh, is a very reflexive one. It's the question of how do we as international lawyers position ourselves in relation to the world or can international lawyers discuss the past, including the past of our discipline in a, in a neutral way? And my answer to this, it would really be no. And, and here Anne, Anne offered uh, her recent book on international law and the politics of history makes the case very powerfully that that every argument about the history of international law is also necessarily an argument about the shape of international law in the present and what that law can be in the future. I think there is a way that international lawyers tend to frame political questions like those about how to respond to poverty or inequality or exploitation in the language of history and precedent in order to render those questions more amenable to technical debate and that sometimes in doing so we close off these debates from from those who lack forms of professional training or who don't know the right precedents or understand legal terms used as shorthand for different kinds of concepts or different forms of authority. So one thing that I think is is particularly significant in engaging with debates over revolution is that they, they help us think about how the significance of these revolutions lives on in debates about international law and how international lawyers are influenced by and and can be attentive to political struggles taking place outside the language and the terms of the discipline. Um, And I think the, the chapters collected in the volume really show, and this would be my... Uh, main takeaway from the book that that arguments about the legacies of these revolutions are also arguments about how we as international lawyers should think and act today about how to perceive 
concentrations of wealth and power in the world and how to think about our own responses to or complicity with them, Um, that they are arguments not just about the past but how different actors are authorised to deploy violence, demand payment or to change the legal organisation of property and of society and arguments about who gets to decide what kinds of revolutions are acceptable and which are not and according to what legal standards. So for me, it's really difficult to imagine a a more political or a, a less neutral topic than this topic. Thank you very much. Uh, Catherine or Anne, would you like to add anything maybe about what you think our listeners' takeaway should be, or do you think that Anna has covered it? Yes, so I would add and really support what Anna's just said, that there is no impartial way of thinking about these past events and no neutral way of representing these revolutions and their legacies for international law. And just Four years ago, in a paper introducing a special issue on the legacy of the Russian Revolution for international law, one international lawyer could argue confidently that real existing socialism had thoroughly discredited itself and it was necessary to address the shockingly uneven distribution of wealth and massive social unrest it causes through different techniques or ideas than those derived from socialism. So that was 2017. And I would say that four years later, I mean just four years later, um, you couldn't make that statement quite that definitively anymore. So in a world in which dispossession and inequality and precarity um, is growing so rapidly and we're still very aware of colonialism and racial oppression, Coming generations seem far more interested in socialism, even in the US. So how we think about this past is shaped by what's going on in the present, and that keeps shifting. So the historian David Armitage recently wrote that the past is unpredictable uh, because what we find historically relevant and what topics seem urgent or defensible or Um, discredited or otherwise, um, or worthy of scholarly investigation, will be changing as our current concerns change. So as socialism seems to be becoming thinkable again, or at least debatable, um, international law will continue to be, I think, a site for the ongoing debate over what socialism meant in the past and what it may yet mean in the present or the future. And with that in mind, I think the book, you know, the take-home point is that there's no one position taken by a monolithic international law, that it's a field of struggle. It was a field of struggle in 1917. It's been a field of struggle ever since. And um, these revolutions continue to shape at least one, you know, set of arguments that are available in this field of struggle. Thank you. Catherine, would you like to add anything? Um, yeah, so um, building on what Anna and, and Anne have said, I think for me there are kind of two main takeaways for um, the listeners. So the first would be um, 
but at least for me, I think when thinking about the relationship between international and revolution, it's largely containment that has prevailed, especially if we're thinking about the economic. So while international law is able to accept, incorporate, legitimate, and inspire revolutionary changes of um, governments, the economic status quo has, has largely been insulated against the impact of such changes um, through international law. And international law really serves to restrain the possibility of radical reformulation um, of economic relations. But at the same time, um, revolutions have kind of the capacity to exceed their containment yeah, in the ways that they're remembered and the international legal histories are um, written about them. And in so doing, yeah, experiences of internationalism and solidarity can be kept alive. And yeah, the possibility of a different international um, legal order um, yeah, is kind of sustained. And remembering revolution can enable us to think critically um, about the present. And in the very final lines of um, the volume, just White writes that um, this is less a teleology of a new utopian future than a refusal to be seduced um, and immobilized by the facile normalization of the present, quoting David Scott there. And that means that we keep asking, even in times of danger, whether there's more um, that we can hope for. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, well, I think that's all we have time for today. I would like to thank Anna, Catherine, and Anne for joining us. Um, thank you very much and goodbye. Thanks so much thank for you. having us, Samantha. Thanks, Samantha.